The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I would be completely amiss if I didn't take just a moment of your time and mine to thank you for allowing myself and my friend David to be here with you this week. It has been a time far away from home for me, probably one of the farthest places I've gone and stayed this long so far, but we have definitely benefited from it. The hospitality, the love, the concern that has been shown, the the listening ears, the students of the Bible that I can see from this pulpit. I don't know if Ryan ever tells you or, or, or Brother Meeker or anybody else who preaches here, but you can tell whether someone is interested in God's Word or not. That doesn't say we don't have a bad day and get distracted. I'm not trying to pin that on you, but uh, you can generally tell over a period of time just how interested a group of people are in God's Word, and you all have certainly shown interest this week, and I appreciate it. I know that on every occasion, uh, to some people's perspectives and ideas, I have taken more of your time than you had planned or allotted. But please don't misunderstand me when I with all sincerity say I, just, I tried very hard not to do that. But I do believe that God's word is being spoken, uh, that it is the case that we ought to give God the allotted time to allow his word to be discussed. And that's hopefully what we've been able to do in every one of these lessons. And hopefully that'll be the same case tonight, albeit my goal is to get, get on. Do y'all say get on up here in the South? We say get on. A little bit early. Now, that's not a promise. That's just a perspective, okay? So mark it down as that. Not a promise, but a perspective. But I'm definitely appreciative of the opportunity that we've had, I've had particularly to come here. And I'm thankful for everything that was done in preparation for this gospel meeting or series of meetings. And I'm thankful for what has gone into it. And I'm certainly thankful for what I know can be the possibility and the potential going forward. I told you back on Sunday that it was my goal everywhere that I went, particularly here this week, to do two things, and that is number one, to evangelize, and number two, to encourage. And so hopefully you found at least some of that in what we have discussed, because it has certainly been my pleasure, and I have been encouraged myself. And I'll add a third one to that that doesn't necessarily apply to you. It may or it may not. I have been educated. Um, and I say that because uh, when I received the topic, if you want to call it that, a few weeks ago, uh, the assignment, if you will, a discussion. Um, I looked at it on the surface and I said, no problem, I got this. And then for the next two to three weeks, I proceeded on average about six hours a day to delve into these things and I came up here. Matter of fact, I told one of my good friends back home, a gospel preacher, Cliff Goodwin, I left the house, uh, what was it, Friday morning, and I text Cliff right before I left and I said, I've got it. I'm finished, and I actually sent him one of the outlines we had been throwing back around, which I will show you in a moment. But I sent it to him, and little did I know, I've probably been averaging, what, David, four to six hours up here in the hotel room. So it's been, a, it's been, it's been something. As a matter of fact, uh, what I had planned to say probably three hours ago, I've completely turned that upside down. We're going to stick with some of the outline and some of the PowerPoint slides, but information in God's Word is available if you'll just put your mind to it and, and study it and do your best to try to, as the Scripture says, to rightly divide it. And my prayer is that that's exactly what we're going to be able to do. Now, 
Uh, as far as the title of tonight's thoughts, we're just continuing in this series that I have entitled myself as being all in love. And I mean by that you put your all into your love for God. And of course, Jesus, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 12 and verse 30, we sang it just a moment ago, albeit I think we sang the version from Deuteronomy. Nonetheless, but Jesus says plainly there is recorded, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And I think that really directs itself in so many cases, as we'll continue to illustrate tonight, directly to the crowd, to the people who were there, to the people who needed to hear it the most. But please don't misunderstand, and I'm saying this in a mirror. Please do not misunderstand. God is still speaking to us through this book. And so please don't get the idea that Jim has taken four hours basically of my time and he has maybe assisted me in some ways to see just how you know, determined people like the Sanhedrin, people like the Pharisees, people like the Herodians and people like the scribes, how much they needed to hear these things. And then you can in turn turn that coin over and say, well, look at what Jesus said to them. Look at all the application Jesus made to those men. And I believe in some senses, albeit I don't know his character just through these words, but I imagine it and picture that Jesus, as he says these things, perhaps he points around the proverbial room and he lets them know to whom he is speaking. But whether or not he did that or not, he did point these things at them, but in doing so, he points those things at us. Because if you divide all of this out, at the end of the day, you and I exist as members of the church that Jesus built, the church of Christ. The only one that he promised to establish and the only one that he did. And there are many times in my life where I can honestly, if I'm sincere in saying, I filled the shoes of any of these groups and more. And that's just the downfall of us. But the upside of such is that we do have, in what we might refer to as hindsight, have the ability to read these records, and we'll do quite a bit of that tonight, and to try to delve in and understand who these people were and what their characteristics were, what their pitfalls were, their problems, and try not to be like them. You've heard the little story of the teacher who got up in the room and she was discussing with the, with the young, young kids, the little kids, you know, the fact that the, the, the scribe and the Pharisee and, and how that one stood and beat upon his chest and lifted up his eyes and, and the other, you know, he prayed to God with his head down. And as the story goes, as she closed that lesson, she told those four and five-year-old, however old they were, she said, now, what is the lesson for today? Try not be like those Pharisees. And the instance of that is, wait a minute, <laughs> in doing and saying even that, sometimes we become those prideful so, with that being said, I, I can't remember the order of these slides that I had to, or chose to. I guess I didn't have to. I felt obligated to put together for you. Uh, but we're going to continue on the same outline here as far as the examination. We're going to look at the context. We're going to look at the text. We're going to continue on with the education. That is, look at the expression, the take-home point, if you will, that we're going to use to blanket statement this evening. Probably and hopefully summarize all that we've said. We're going to look at the exercises of such. That is, what must I do in order to express these things before the world and, more importantly, before God? But with that and before and as I do that, I want to share with you, this is my, if you will, outline. I've never in my life sat down and done an 
Excel document, what else do you call this? A spreadsheet on anything, but I, I've had to do it on this, and this has been adapted so many times since and, and before, but basically I took these four things, the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength, and took and tried my best in delving through not just this account, Mark's account, Mark chapter 12, also looking at Luke's account, Luke chapter 10, Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 22. And I tried to meld all of those together to determine who the people were that were involved. And of course, as you've already seen in illustration, I paired the heart along with the Pharisees back on Sunday. On Monday, we in turn paired the soul with Herodians on Monday. On Tuesday and last evening, we paired the mind with the Sadducees. And we looked through this and we saw their problems. One, the Pharisees being pious. Two, we saw the problem of the Herodians being political. We saw the, the idea of those who were Sadducees feeling as if they were privileged. And because of their privilege and their hierarchy in society that they had the authority over others. We saw the propositions that they have made, and I don't know if I've done a good job at all of drawing those out for you, but talking about the priority or questioning, making accusation of Jesus concerning priority, concerning loyalty, concerning eternity. And tonight as we really back up, if you look at it on your pages there, in consideration of the parts of this text that we have been able to discuss, you're really in some senses backing up towards the beginning of that in Luke chapter 11 and verse 27 to talk tonight just for a bit about the strength of the Sanhedrin. At least the imagined strength of the Sanhedrin. At least the imagined power of the Sanhedrin. At least the imagined authority that the Sanhedrin believed that they had. And so we're going to be doing that tonight as we look forward into and back toward our outline in this. So as far as the examination of such, in order to understand the context of it, just keep in mind, I won't say it completely again, verse 18, chapter 11, the scribes and, and the chief priests and all, they sought to destroy Jesus. On down in chapter 11, verse 27, which is where we're going to be in just a moment, you have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders kind of a conglomerate to form this Sanhedrin that we'll be discussing. They come to Jesus with that question of authority. You go across the page into verse 13 of chapter 12. We've already discussed both the Pharisees and the Herodians and their perspective. They were talking about the loyalty that they ought to have in this life and in the everlasting. And then the Pharisees, those who were pious and asked questions about priority. And really, that what is said there by the Pharisees, verse 28 of chapter 12, listed specifically as the scribe being the verbalizer of such. That is, he used words, vehicles of communication to verbalize such. He stood there, in a sense, only representing all the others. He stood there, in a sense, preparing the way for Jesus to answer such questions and preparing the way for Jesus to give all of those men a guide that ought to have taken hold of their lives in heart, mind, or soul, mind, and strength. So let's consider the context right here. A few things I want you to know about these men called the, the Sanhedrin, which again, verse 27, we'll read their account, we'll back up and we'll come back to it. Verse 27, Mark chapter 11, preceding chapter, but still context here. And they came again unto Jesus 
uh, or unto Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple. And there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and say unto him, by what authority, underline that word if you're marking in your Bibles, by what authority dost thou do these things. Now, if you want to know what these things are, you can just take, if you're in Mark chapter 11, you, for Mark's account, you turn back to chapter 1. If you're in Matthew 22, you turn back to Matthew chapter 1. If you're in Luke chapter 10, you turn back to Luke chapter 1. And you read the conglomerate of the whole of the gospel accounts and see what he had done to this point. Again, I believe, clarification, I believe this is on Wednesday of the Passion, quote-unquote Passion Week, so a couple of days before his death. So whatever he did in life, the vast majority of that is done by the time these questions arise. But they ask him, by what authority do thou do these things? And Jesus, verse 29, answered and said unto them, I will ask you one question. Well, little did he realize, of course as God I guess he would, but as a human, little would he realize just the attack he was about to be ensued in. But what if I ask you a question and answer me and I will tell you by what authority, underline that again, I do these things. In his question there in verse 30, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, a few words we won't delve into very deeply. We'll have to come back to the word authority that's listed a few times. But one of the words that he uses here when he says, answer me, he says, you give me your defense. You give me your ideas. You give me your thoughts. You give me the best evidence that you have for John the baptizer. We were taught in the Memphis School of Preaching by Keith Mosey, you're supposed to say, from whence did he come? I, we didn't have whence in Alabama when I grew up. But where did he come from? Where did he come from? More than that, where was his authority? Where, where did he get what he had? Now, remember, we already realize this as Bible students, John the baptizer, John the Baptist here, listed as he is. The or, I'm sorry, the baptism that John committed to, done by John the baptizer, did he pull that out of thin air? No. We know that he came in as the, what we refer to as the forerunner of Jesus. He came in not only with authority in that sense, but with prophecy backing him up. He was not incidental. John was not accidental. John was not coincidental in what he did. He was doing the will of the Lord. Now, from their perspective, standing back, the Sanhedrin that we're about to really list out on, the Sanhedrin standing back, they believed they had some type of authority. And perhaps they had believed that that authority was equal to that of the baptism of John or equal to the personal authority of him and such. And they reasoned, verse 31, and they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we shall say from heaven... He will say, then why then did you not believe him? But if, verse 32, we shall say of men, then they feared the people. For all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And the word indeed means he's a complete, obvious, perfected prophet. He was a prophet 
So they said, indeed. Verse 33, And when they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell, Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I don't, again, I cannot know the mind of God. We've certainly got God in the body, in Jesus, standing in front of these people. The accusations and the interrogations are going to begin, and they are beginning even here. They are asking him questions. They are trying to catch him in something. I don't know what his mind was like. I don't know what his authority was like, but his answer was basically summarized this. Why don't you tell me what you do? Now, I know there's a discussion of John. That's the biblical example and such. But the end result is, I'll tell you where my authority comes from if you tell me where you get yours. And in saying that, he's really standing back. And in some senses, albeit I do not picture him this way, he's really standing back and saying, you've seen it. You know well where my authority comes from. Now, when you think about some of the other groups we've had to discuss, specifically like the Herodians, the Herodians, as we mentioned a couple of nights ago, or maybe even last night, the Herodians did not necessarily, night before last, did not necessarily consider themselves to be a spiritual group. They were more political. And so maybe they weren't as concerned about this thing that he would say and the latter thing that he would say over in chapter 12 and verse 30 and 31. The uh, Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, albeit very spiritually minded, keep in mind that their vast majority of their understanding came directly from what is referred to as the Torah or the first five books, the books of Moses. And so when Jesus makes any application about John the baptizer or about the baptism of John and particularly about someone or anyone being a prophet, guess what they thought of that? No. No, because they didn't even respect the prophets of old. Why respect the prophet of John? Why respect Jesus as a prophet, what he would eventually be to them? A prophet, a priest, and a king. Why respect him for that? In their minds, he would have had little, if any, authority. But here we have these chief priests, the scribes, and the elders that consistently made up the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, if you do your research and do your digging, depending on translation, King James translation being one example, you don't necessarily find that literal word, the Sanhedrin. That's more of a spiritual, not spiritual, that's more of a historical application and an understanding of what they had come down to and developed in their time. And in order to really understand why these men would ask such a question about authority, we have to really grasp what authority they had supposed upon themselves. I want to do that in three ways. These will not be on the screen. The first thing you should understand, or I was pleased to find and understand about the Sanhedrin was their foundation. Their supposed foundation, their supposed beginning. Now, I'm saying supposed and trying to be clear with that because their actual beginnings and their actual foundations did not necessarily track back as clearly to what they have said or would say about themselves. Now, here's my side note lesson. You'll find many people in the religious world 
who will tell you that their authority or their practices or their you know, groups and assemblies in, in their worship or whatever, that they go back to Jesus and the truth is they really don't. That's just what they say. They can't necessarily track what they practice and how they live and what they believe and how they you know, play themselves out in this life, this side of eternity. They can track that back to Jesus, albeit... Nearly all, not all religions, but nearly all uh, Christian quote-unquote religions would try to do such. No, this group known as the Sanhedrin along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and such, the vast majority of what they were doing in the moment, time of writing for this book, Life of Christ, really took place again, literally, on the, blank, on the blank page between the Testaments. They did, however, point back. You can write these references down. We won't take time to much read them. But their foundations did, in a sense, if you will, point back to places like Exodus 18, 13 through 27. That's Exodus 18, 13 through 27. Because they used an example of a time when the father-in-law of Moses came to him after Moses had been tried to be had tried to be the judge and the decision maker and the Lord over all physical things, not to replace God. That wasn't Moses' character, but he had tried to take care of all judicial slash uh, physical slash um, you know all manners concerning daily living and human life. And Moses' father-in-law, as recorded in Exodus 18, 13 through 17, comes to him in a nutshell, me summarizing in uh, Montfort English, not even you know, Hebrew that Moses would have understood. But he says, Moses, you can't do all this. You need to appoint you some different and various men to help you. You need to go around and look over all this nation and try to handpick some of the best of this nation. Some of the ones who are taking charge and taking a, a level of spiritual authority for them and their families. Remember, we're talking about a day when we're moving out of the patriarchal age. You're now in the Mosaic age at the time of this recording at least. But moving into a time when they, the heads of households really still took much responsibility. And he says, Moses, go pick you some men to assist you and to help you. Now... You have to take that, and they look back, that is, the, Sadu the Sanhedrin looks back and says, well, that's where we got this idea. We just decided that the Jewish nation as a whole, the children of Israel, New Testament times even, so you move through the Old Testament, that's intertestamental period, big word is there. You're in the law of Christ, or at least you're just, just up to the death of Christ, where the law of Christ will be established and put into full effect. And we have discovered that we needed to rule these people. What is the issue with something like that? You have to be cautious with this. Did God ordain or does God allow for human slash physical slash, you know, in amongst the people a judicial system? Yes, he did. Okay, no doubt about it. No, no exaggeration. Yes. So long as that government does so with God not in mind, but in the whole matter. 
they would point some authority for what they do back to Exodus 18:13 through 27. In the second place, they point back as well in digging through this to Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 to 29. And in Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 to 29, you start to learn a little bit more about where they supposedly point at their authority. And by, by the way, there are biblical examples in these texts that look something like what they did, albeit not the way they did it. But they point back to Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 to 29, and they attempt to gain some of their ideas and their authority from that in the practice being seen of exactly how that is borne out. How you choose men out and how, what those men are able to have authority over and what areas they're able to have authority over, they point back that, to that for some biblical pattern. And then the last one here, there may be more, this is three that I chose to, to share with you. Deuteronomy chapter 17. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. So Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13, there is a layout that is somewhat legit. You know what legit is? I'm a child of the, the 70s and 80s. That's a little short for legitimate. Now, nowadays, they wouldn't even use but one letter for that. I don't know what it'd be. But, I mean, things have been uh, brought down to, you know, LOL is all these things. It wasn't that back then. But, anyway, they would bring some of their legitimacy for their structure of what the Sanhedrin did back to Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. And that is the structure basically contained a group that was drawn out of the Levites. A group that was drawn out of the priest. And a group that is drawn out of the judges or the judicial system. And they would use that as their foundationary pattern. Again, being all aware that this system in itself fully did not even exist. Matter of fact, you find no biblical continual pattern for that to continue to exist until that intertestamental period. Now, have I just about rotted your brain with boar? We almost done. In the next part of this, not only do I notice their foundation, where do they claim to have their beginning, you have to notice their function. Now, this does apply itself to the for real Jewish Sanhedrin listed out here as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. When this Sanhedrin gathered together, even though they had taken a pattern of 70 men from Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 to 19, even though they took a pattern back over in Exodus chapter 13, uh, or Exodus chapter, I'm sorry, 18, 13 through 11, even though they took their pattern from such, and even though they even took some of their structure from Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13, what they literally did was, instead of using the number 70, which they could have said, okay, here it is. Remember, Jesus does something similar as he chooses men, sends them out. Instead of using the number 70, somehow out of thin air, they came up with 70 and here's how that structure goes there's 72 so they have divided it starts out with a very narrow field of view and that is something called the Nisi now I'm not pronouncing that right so I'll say that up front 
something called the Nisi. That is something spelled like N-A-S-I. That stood, from the Hebrew at least, that stood for the tiebreaker or the president. So the Sanhedrin had a president. They sometimes referred to him, strangely enough, as the prince. But the Sanhedrin had a president of one. And he did not vote unless there was a tie. In the second place, underneath that Nisi, if you will, there was another group that is, again, my pronunciation, the Av B Dion. Av B Dion. Yeah, I just said that two different ways, two different times. Because why? Because I don't know how to say it. That consisted of one man who was referred to as the vice president. So you can tell, president, vice president, a smidge up under him. Now, he did vote in matters. He threw his vote in on every matter, as a matter of fact. So we've got two, but we've got to get to 72. The next group down, and this was, again, their supposed biblical division of such, they chose out 23 men referred to as the Kohan or Kohan, and they were set to judge over priestly things. So if it concerned the priesthood, anything to do with the priesthood, they, the Kohan, were set to judge or make judgments over the priestly things. Secondary to that, they came up with 23 more men. So 23, 23, and we've already got two. They came up with 23 more men, and these were known as the Levites. Well, they got a good biblical basis for at least that section of this. And they were supposed to judge over, and there's small separation between the two, the Levitical things. Now remember, every priest would have been a Levite, but not every Levite would have been a priest. So the divisions of their duties on the old law were somewhat different. But they judged over those. And then finally they took out 23 more men. And they were supposed to come from, according to Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13, from the judges of Israel. So we've got 23 working back up. 23, 23, 1 and 1, 72. And they stood back as the Sanhedrin. And if you could imagine what it was like, it is comparable to our Supreme Courts. And not to take a negative stance on that, not to sidestep the fact that we need in some form a judicial system that assists us with some things sometimes. But the Sanhedrin stood much like our American Sanhedrin, Supreme Court, and they made complete and total, and in most cases, final judgments. And I think very much like our modern Supreme Courts, oftentimes those judgments not only go directly in the face of God, they actually go in the face of the will of the people. So go figure. The Sanhedrin. That was their foundation. This within itself is their function. What about their folly? 
Now in the context here, they come to Jesus and they question him. Remember, I ask you to underline these words. It's listed three times really quickly. They question him concerning his authority, his authority, and by what authority? And in that word authority, of course it means authority, it means power, it means strength, it means ability and giveability. Where do we get authority? Where do you, Jesus, get your authority, they say? Let's look back, and I chose Matthew's account for this. You can find very similar as well in Luke's account. But let's go back to Matthew. So if you're in Mark chapter 11 and 12, go back to Matthew chapter 26. Now, not that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin or the Herodians are not that any of these people had not been a difficulty, a thorn in the side of Jesus prior to this record, Matthew 26. But by Matthew 26, if you will, the, the flame has been turned up extremely hot. They are doing what they can. We've already read it in Mark chapter 11 and verse 18. They seek to destroy him. That's Jesus. And in Matthew 26 and verse 3, we'll only spot read some of these, so mark them, and I beg you to read the context later. In Matthew 26 and verse 3, And then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders of the people unto the palace, the high priest who is called Caiaphas. Now, where have you ever heard the name Caiaphas? Well, you go forward, and he, along with the Sanhedrin, which is who are being discussed here, they want to be a part of the destruction of our Lord. They want to be a part and parcel to making sure that he eventually would die. Matter of fact, we begin to see such. That's Matthew 26 and verse 3. Go across the page quite a bit. Get down to verse 47 of Matthew 26. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and was with him and a great multitude of swords and staves from the who? From the chief priests and the elders of the people. So we know what Judas eventually would do, right? We know that Judas would be a sellout, a traitor, that he would be the one for 30 pieces of silver, would be trying to at least cash in on the physical things of life and take advantage so that he might betray him. So that he might at least give him over to the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and all of these groups, mainly the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now you can read on down for that, and I hope that you will in context, but drop down to verse 57. Same group of people, verse 57 of Matthew 26. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. The high priests were the scribes and the elders. Watch that word, assembled. You know what the word Sanhedrin means? The gathered ones. <laughs> when all these people came to gather to, in this case, to attempt to destroy him. Keep up the reading, verse 57, chapter 26. And Peter followed him afar off into the high priest's palace. And he went and sat in the servants to see to the end. And now the chief priest and the elders, all and all the council, underline that word, saw false witnesses against Jesus to put him to death. 
Now you continue up the reading there, but found none. <laughs> yea, many false witnesses came, and they found none. And at last two false witnesses came, verse 61, and said, This fellow had said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it up in three days. Why does that matter? Guess where all of these people like to gather? In and around the temple. Their entire lives. Now, granted, they're living under the old law, so I understand some of such. But now their breakdown and the fact that they have multiple high priests and multiples of this and wrongly do that cannot agree. But during their day and time, living still under the old law, I completely understand why they would continue to try, at least, to gather at the temple place. And the high priest arose, verse, 20, uh, verse 62, and the high priest arose and said unto him, and answered, uh, answering nothing, of which the witnesses are against thee, but Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ the Son of God. Now, you don't read it in between the lines, but I promise it's there. Why did they want to know if he was Christ, the Son of God? Because they, got, they gave God at least a portion and parcel of their authority. He was the supreme authority. They accepted such, but not so about Jesus. For time's sake, drop down to chapter 27 and verse 1. And when morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Verse 2, 27, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. So again, we know what those kangaroo courts look like. They bring him into the Sanhedrin. They, they, of course, they get Judas to, to assist with that. They bring him into the Sanhedrin. They bring him into Pilate. They take him out of Pilate. They take him to Herod. They do all these things. Why? Because they need someone not only to bring charges against him, but they need someone to, to make sure the penalty for those charges is death. And albeit the Sanhedrin in the past may have had some of that authority in some matters, the Romans had taken that away. They crushed that level of authority. And then that, that within itself, we did this a few times last night. I, I think I got a little sore. We won't, we'll fake it. But that was a slap in the face. Rome took part of their authority. And so, of course, they're asking questions about authority. Where do you get your authority? Where did John get his authority? Jesus says, where do you get your authority? And then in verse 2, And they bound him and led him away and delivered him unto Pontius Pilate, the governor. Time's sake, moving to chapter 27, look at verse number 20, 27, 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas, and watch it, and destroy Jesus. Now this thing is accelerating quickly. They brought in false witnesses. They've done what they can. They've reached out. They've cried out. They've carried him from one kangaroo court to the next. And it's come down to the point... They've even got, excuse me, got in the ear of the people and said, look, if, if we were to end up in this position where you would have an option between Barabbas, and of course Pilate offers such, between Barabbas or Jesus, you better say Barabbas. That is your, that is your option. Verse 41, for time's sake, chapter 27. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders. Same group. The Sanhedrin, the supreme Jewish authority, so they had given themselves to be, in theory at least, 
They're mocking Jesus. Why? Because he has true authority. They understand it. They accept it. But they will not give in to it. Verse 62, chapter 27. I promise you this is going to drive into a point that I'm 46. I couldn't read for the first few years. Can't read very good now, so I can't lie. It hasn't been 46 years. But it's been quite a while. Never seen this. Here it is. Coming up close. Verse 62. And now when the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Verse 63 saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, three days, after three days, I will, I will raise up again. And he commanded, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure. And until the third day, the disciples came by night to steal him away. And say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So in the last day, it should be worse than the first. Now, just to back away from that, basically Jesus has now been crucified. Blanks are filled in. And they're trying to make sure the tomb is secured because they want to be sure that no one steals the body. No one takes away the body and makes it look like he fulfilled prophecy. I read that because even though the man, and I say the man clearly, even though in physical sense the man is dead, they will not give up. Verse 11, chapter 28. And now they were, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came over into the city and showed unto the chief priests all things that were done. So they get his approval. Here's what we've done. We've got him, you know, we got him in the tomb. We've got the tomb sealed. Uh, thus and such as that. Now he in turn is... They're coming up to a point where they, they continue to discuss the matter, all things that were done. And when, verse 12, 28, and when they were assembled, the elders had taken counsel to give large money unto the soldiers. Why? Because now he's come out of the tomb, just as he said, and the only way to cover that trick, and I'm using the word trick from their perspective, is to try to convince the world that, yeah, well, he did, but somebody stole the body anyway. That is in direct context. We started in chapter 26 and verse 2. We spot read 26, 2, 20, 41, 27, several of those verses as well. We get down to 28. They're taking counsel. They're paying big money to make sure this is covered. In verse 18, look, this is Matthew's accounts. Why I choose Matthew's accounts. Very chronological in his account. Verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. All authority is given me in heaven and in earth. That is in context of a group of people referred to as the Sanhedrin who for days, months, even years have tried to deny the authority of Jesus. It's in the context of them assuring themselves 
that they have in some way completely wiped Jesus from the tablets of history. And that even though they did it by ill means, for the wrong mindset and attitude, they believe they have done something for the people, for the Jews, all to the cause of the greater good. And even though in just some of the things we read, they went as far as to get people to lie against him to even get the conviction. Then once they achieved such, after convincing the people that was the only opportunity to take, after convincing them of such, they in turn try to cover what has really happened, we know is the resurrection, by saying, well, either, <laughs> you know, either he was stolen away and somebody just missed it, or in other theories, he was never dead. Not all accounted here in Matthew's account, by the way. And that's where Jesus stopped and said, All power, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. To whom do you think he was speaking? Those that was the context. And then we come back to our text. Verse 29, Mark chapter 12. And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel. Now remember, this is one of those scribes, one of the members of that Sanhedrin, one of the members of those listed, chapter eleven twenty-seven. All commandments. This is the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, Pharisees. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy soul, that is the Herodians. And thou shalt love the God, Lord thy God with all thy mind, you Sadducees. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy strength to those who thought they had within themselves all power. How do you use the strength that you have physically? How do you use that? I would say the way that we use our physical strength is that we use it in the ability we have to do. We use that in what we're able to to do in this life. How do we express such? In educating ourselves, we express this very plainly in that Christianity is, is a religion of motion. I and you have to use the strength that is the power that is the authority that God gives us through only His Son and His Word and use it to do something. I mentioned this the other day in speaking to someone. I had a good friend back home. Still do have a good friend back home, I guess. But a good friend back home, he was a gospel preacher in the area and, and one member, there was probably more, but one member gave him a hard time just about anything that he did. He really couldn't do much right. 
And she came to him on one occasion questioning some of the things they were doing surrounding a door knocking that he had been instrumental in at least planning. And after he had took about as much as he could take, with I believe quite a bit of wisdom as a young fellow, he looked at this lady and he said this. He said, I like what I'm doing better than what you're not doing. Oh, what a tribute to most of us as members of Lord's Church. What are we doing? The Sanhedrin, by this example, the Sanhedrin used their authority, they used their power, they used their energy to basically make judgment on men. Never once listed that they actually took much time, if any, themselves. Pharisees, maybe. Sadducees, somewhat. But to make a convert out of the world. They did not stand back as the teachers of the nations, necessarily. They did not stand back in trying to take what they should have been well aware of as those who judged the Jewish nation to say, okay, here is the law of the Torah. Here, is the, here are the books of Moses. But yet, here are the prophets. And in all these prophets lined out in perfect, perfect order. We have our Savior called Jesus come to the world, and yet here he stands. No, they take their energy. They take their motion, and they stand back to judge him. Of all the people, to stand and to attempt to judge they judged the one who, according to Matthew 28, said, All power is given unto me. What's that mean? I like to turn coins over. It means it wasn't given to you. You, in these matters, in a spiritual sense, to lord over someone's eternity have no authority. But God does. Probably many of you in thinking about the idea of strength already concluded in your mind something I did not even consider for the majority of my studies. And that is the very simple yet common verse many times taken out of context but yet still lies appropriate, Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things, how? Through Christ, which gives me strength. Eh, that's just a variant way to say that. Let's think that through. I can do all things through Christ, who at one point stood back and gave me all authority in the world to make my own choice. I can do all things I want to do in life because I've determined and decided what, what my, you know, what my uh, bent is toward. I found my dreams and my hopes and my desires and I've lined them up and Christ just kind of, you know, give me a slap on the back and said, go with that, do what you want. No. Through Christ which strengtheneth me. He gives me strength. And what am I to do with the strength that God gives me? Some of you, many of you probably, have been in a place physically in life where you've had at times very little strength. Where you've had at times the inability in front of you 
of not being able to do. And maybe question or not whether for you eternity, maybe in death, was about to turn. Where would your strength lie? What would I do with a strength such as that? Christianity is a religion not only of emotion, not only of devotion, not only of notion, but it's certainly one of motion. Now, if there's a message that the Lord's church in every place needs to hear, it is that one. You and I need to do something for God. Not to take your time, I'll just flash it on the screen, read these things for yourself. The idea of zeal is to be burning with the desire to do. Burning with the intention to do with, with what I have. But in the mindset, in the context of saying, if I have from God, I have. There is not a moment of my waking when I stand on this earth that I cannot, at least should not, give to God in some way. You say, well, you're a preacher and you get to travel and you get time to study and you, I don't have that. I work down at the mill and I do this and I got all other things. Look, you can live for God in every aspect in your life. I can live for God in Walmart. I can live for God on the street. I can live for God in the church house. But I have to give God my all. And I have to give to God my strength. And my zeal has to be for Him. Read this on your own time. We will not use it as I had intended. But you look at the life of this man, Apollos. And what a wonderful man he was. Yet in one area, his direction so we're off. But yet in one area, when he was corrected, when he was assisted by Aquila and Priscilla, that last verse, if you can look it up or see it, Acts 18, 24 to 28, says this, for he was mightily convinced that's King James translation. The literal terms there carry with the idea that he vehemently argued. And the backing up in that said he said it expounded on it boldly and fervently, verse 25. That is, he took the strength that he was able to gain from God and he used that to be mightily convinced publicly. And when he was doing that, he did it with the scriptures. So what does Apollos do? He thinks about Jesus. He say, sounds familiar. Seems like you've just about gotten to that every night. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's what Jesus said. Love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. What do you mean, Jesus? Think about me. Consider me first. You know, those who you love, you give the most effort, you give the most time. You give the most credit. You live the most. You forgive the most. 
Jesus said, think about me. And then very similar, talk about me. That's where our efforts need to lie. You can close your Bibles. And I think we've had some mic trouble, so I won't move. If some of us backed up, and I, I definitely, this is before my time, albeit I knew who he was. You might remember in the NFL football realm, college football, it's one I'll mention, a fella by the name of Fran Tarkington. You know who Fran Tarkington was? He was one of the men on That's Incredible, which was my favorite show as a child. Okay, Side note. Fran Tarkington was actually and, and is a Hall of Fame, NFL Hall of Fame type guy. His beginnings went back to Georgia, University of Georgia. And it was said, and it has been confirmed this fact, that while he was at the University of Georgia, he actually went there against the advice of all of his friends and family and many of the coaches. So don't go there. They've got two great quarterbacks, and you're a quarterback. They've got two great quarterbacks that are far and above ahead of you. He chose to go. Georgia was in the midst of their worst stint of win-losses in, in history. They were playing Texas, first game of the season. Rand Tarkenden standing on the sideline. They're down seven to nothing. It's ending the third quarter. And he's standing there on the sideline, and he's watching what's happened the whole game. And he's watched these other quarterbacks trade in and out, and neither one of them having any success whatsoever. Starting quarterback came off the field to try to deal with a punt that was taking place and to get set for that, and Fran noticed he wasn't there. And Fran Tarkenden ran out on the field and grabbed the ball. And the head coach looked and said, what is he doing there? And the offensive coordinator said, I thought you sent him out there. No, not me. And the quarterback that had come off the field said, I can't believe the coach put him in. And the truth is, no one had. Fran said, watching what he had seen, that his blood began to boil. And he ran out on the field all on his own. And they marched down the field some 90 yards and scored. And we're back in the game. Say, well, of course, you end it with something so trivial. No, it's not. What makes your blood boil? What makes you say, I've got to do something? I can't stand back and watch what is happening around me. How many of you can picture the face? of anyone who is lost. I've got family members. I've got friends. I've got neighbors. They are lost. Not my judgment. Yea, God's.
What will I do? What will I do with the strength God has given me? What type of motion will I take to save their souls? I have stood over the graves of too many people and heard the clods of dirt hitting on top of their caskets and had to think with much regret what I didn't do. I will not do that because I have the power of God to do different. If you're here this evening, God has came to you tonight. In my mind, he's used his servant. But the truth is, he's using his word. Through faith, repentance, confession, and being baptized, you don't have to stand in eternity lost. I don't have to stand in the number of the masses. Yea, can stand by our Lord's own lips in the way of the few. But I tell you what, I don't want any of that few to include you or exclude you. You flipped something earlier, didn't you? I want that. If you're here tonight, the Lord's invitation is open. It's not just open tonight. It's open all the time, every day. I'm sure there'll be great gospel sermons and lessons preached and taught in the coming weeks and days if eternity is to stand. But there's one thing I know, eternity may not stand. What we do, we do for God. Why not live for God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and even tonight, with all your strength. While together we stand and as we sing.